All right. Well, I told you a little earlier um, that we're starting a new mini-series today as a part of our Grander Follow Me series. What we've been doing is we, uh, I told you early on that we're starting this series called Follow Me. Uh, we're just taking a deep dive into the book of Luke, and then once we finish that, it'll be a deep dive into the book of Acts because we want to know what it means to follow Jesus. One of the things we talked about is that to be a Christian means to be Christ-like. To be a Christian means to be Christ-like. And if we want to know what Christ was like... If we want to be Christ-like, we have to know what Christ was like. So we said we're just going to spend as much time. I said, I don't know how long it's going to take to get through Luke. It could take a year. It could take five. As long as it takes, we're just going to dive in because we want to see what Jesus was like so that we can become like him because that's what it means to be a Christian. Well, as I was going through Luke, I realized that there was, every once in a while, there are certain pockets that lend themselves well to a, a mini-series, and this is one of them. We're calling it Plain Truth. It's based on Jesus' Sermon on the Plain. Uh, today, we're going to look at what Jesus had to say about happiness. But before we dive into the text, I want you to just close your eyes for a minute, and I want you to go to your happy place, okay? Go to your happy place. And when you think about happiness, think about some of the words that you associate with happiness. When you think about what it means to be happy, what does it mean to you to be happy? Just think about that for just a second. And then we'll see if we'll compare that with what Jesus says about happiness here in just a minute. Don't go to sleep on me. All right, you found your happy place? You've got some words? All right, if you can turn to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. Uh, I'll, throw the, I'll put the verses up here on the screen. If you don't have your Bible, you can follow along there as well. Um, middle of the chapter here, uh, it says that Jesus was with his disciples. He says, he went down with them and stood on a level place. Now, the, this is from the New International Version. If you have a King James Version, which is what I grew up on, it says he went down and stood with them on the plain. That's where we get the term Sermon on the Plain. If you read through Matthew, he has a very similar sermon that he gives on a mountain. And so they call it the Sermon on the Mount. Um, so when he gives a Sermon on the Plain, they give it the creative title, Sermon on the Plain. So level place is plain here. Uh, moving on, it says, A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea and from Jerusalem and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of, his, of their diseases. So he's got a great crowd. He's there on the plain. He's got people from all over the region who's come to hear him teach and to be healed from their diseases. And so he begins to teach and this is what it says. He says, looking at his disciples, he said, blessed are you. Now, blessed are you. Now, uh, this word blessed is the Greek word makrios, makarios, excuse me, the Greek word makarios. And one of the definitions is this. It says it's used to express the happiness of the rich who are free from care. The happiness of the rich who are free from care. So in other words, this word could be and perhaps should be translated happy. Happy are you. So Jesus begins his Sermon on the Plain explaining to people what, you know, the, who, who should be happy. Blessed are, or happy are you. Moving on, he, looking at his disciples, he said, blessed or happy are you who are poor. What? How many of you put poor on your list of things that, when you think of happiness? How many of you pictured poverty, being poor? That's not on your, probably not on your top ten list of what it means to be happy, is it? This, so uh, 
throughout this series, we've been seeing how Jesus sort of takes what everybody expects. Uh, he takes the status quo and he sort of flips it on its head. Most of us, when we think of happiness, poor is not anywhere near the top of our lift. list. When we picture our lives in our happy place, we don't picture being poor. And yet here we have Jesus saying, blessed, happy are you who are poor. And the poor are probably thinking, wait a second, I'm not happy, I'm poor. It's hard to be happy when you're poor. It's hard to be happy when you don't have your needs met. And so uh, one of the questions you should probably be thinking is, why in the world would Jesus say that the poor are happy? We all know that the poor aren't happy, right? If you're happy, you're rich. If, you know, if you're rich, you're happy. The poor are thinking, wait, wait a second. I want to be rich. If I'm rich, I'll be happy. How many of you think that? If I could only make so much more money, I would finally be happy. And yet Jesus says, happy are you who are poor. Well, why in the world would Jesus say that the poor are happy? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked. He says, looking at his disciples, he said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. For yours is the kingdom of God. Jesus is telling us here that in the kingdom of God, as we've seen time and time again throughout the book of Luke, Jesus takes what everybody expects, what everybody thinks the kingdom is supposed to be like, and he flips it on his head. Yours is the kingdom of God. You're thinking, wait a second, kingdoms don't belong to poor people. Kingdoms belong to the rich and the powerful. And yet Jesus is saying, in the kingdom of God, the poor are the ones who are honored. We saw this in Luke chapter 4 when Jesus sort of gave his mission statement. When he said, this is what I'm here to do. I'm here to minister to those who are poor. Jesus is saying, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. He's saying, while you may be poor right now... You're the people that I've come for. And when, when the kingdom fully comes in its, in its fullness, you are going to be restored. You are going to be the ones who are honored in this, in this kingdom. That's why you're happy. So he's not, saying, he's not saying I expect you to you know, revel in your poverty, but he's saying the kingdom is here for you. The kingdom of God is here for those who, who aren't getting the kind of preferential treatment in the world that everybody else is getting. He's saying, I'm coming for those that everybody else has sort of written off. I'm coming for those that everybody else has sort of forgotten about. So then he goes on, and he says, blessed, happy are you who hunger now. Again, you're thinking, what? Hunger wasn't on my list of happiness. When I think of myself being happy, Hungry is not on the list. When I think of myself being happy, it's probably after I've had a really nice meal and I'm full and I'm satisfied. And Jesus is saying, nope. In the kingdom of God, the happy ones are the ones who hunger now. Why? For you will be satisfied. He's pointing to the future when the fullness of the kingdom finally comes. Those who are poor and those who are hungry are going to be filled with the things that they were missing in this life. He's saying that... The kingdom is going to flip. It's going to take everything that you know and everything you think about happiness and it's going to flip it on its head. So those of you who are poor and those of you who are hungry now, I've come for you. And when the kingdom comes in its fullness, you are going to be satisfied. Everything that you think that you're missing in this life, you're going to be restored in the next. When the kingdom comes, you will be satisfied. He goes on again. He says, happy are you who weep now. What you're thinking, wait a second. I don't think that I'm happy when I'm weeping. When I picture my happy place, I'm not crying, I'm not weeping, I'm not sad. But Jesus says, no, because in the future, when everything is restored, you will laugh. You will laugh. Then he goes on, he says, blessed, happy are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil. 
I'm pretty sure that wasn't on any of your happy places. Right? When you thought of happiness, you didn't think of being hated and excluded and insulted and rejected, did you? But Jesus says, no, you should be happy when people hate you and exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Because of the Son of Man. Jesus says, blessed are you when you're persecuted, when you're hated, when you're insulted. You should, you should be happy about that because, he goes on to say, rejoice in that day and leap for joy, right? How many of you, when you're insulted, do you leap for joy because somebody has insulted you, because somebody has hated you? But Jesus says we should rejoice in the day that we're hated for his name. And yet here in America, we, I mean, we barely have any taste of what this actually means. Here in America, we are so blessed as Christians. There, <coughs> people talk about persecution of the church in America, and it, it, it makes me laugh because we're, we're just not persecuted. We're not persecuted as a church in America. I mean, every once in a while, we may be inconvenienced, but we're not hated by and large because of, because of Jesus. And when we are, it's usually because it's our own fault, because we've been jerks about it. And yet, when we are, when we are, when we experience some persecution, what do we do? We don't rejoice about it. No, we file lawsuits. And we complain and we whine that people are persecuting us. And Jesus says, no, you should rejoice in that day. Rejoice when people hate you and insult you because great is your reward in heaven. In every one of these cases, Jesus is saying, it may not be... For those of you who, who don't have it good right now, look to the future. Be future-minded because when that day comes, when I bring the kingdom in its fullness, everything is going to be restored for you. Jesus says, for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. If you've ever gone through and read the, the Old Testament prophets, you know that the ones who spoke for God weren't treated very well. The, uh, they, they, they met some fates that weren't particularly pleasant. Jesus says, when we experience that kind of persecution, we ought to rejoice. We ought to leap for joy. And instead, we tend to whine and complain and file lawsuits and, you know, pass laws and, and all of that. We just got the whole thing backwards and Jesus takes everything that we think we should know and flips it on its head. So here's Jesus' recipe for happiness. Jesus' recipe for happiness is poor, hungry, weeping, and hated. How many of you was that your happy place? How many of you picture that as being happy? But Jesus says this is the recipe for happiness. Why? Why is this recipe for happiness? Because these are the very people that Jesus came for. Now, here's what I know about most of us. Most of us, if not all of us, none of us are poor. None of us really are hungry. Sometimes we weep. Uh, very few of us are hated. So this ought to make us a little bit uncomfortable. As, as comfortable, wealthy American Christians, Jesus' recipe for happiness doesn't really apply to us. This ought to make us a little uncomfortable. As a matter of fact, if if I wasn't teaching through Luke, I, you know, I probably would skip over this because it makes me a little uncomfortable as a comfortable, fairly wealthy, in terms of all of life, American Christian. Um, this is sort of the, the beauty of being forced to preach through a text because when I look at this and I look at us, I realize that what Jesus says about happiness doesn't really apply to most of us. And then he goes on. He says... Woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. And you might be thinking, well, I'm not rich. To which I say, yeah, you are. Yeah, you are. 
in the overall scheme of life, in comparison with, with all, all of the world, if you have any extra, if you, if you drove here in a car today from the roof that was over your head after putting some food in your belly for breakfast and you've got a little extra money to buy some clothes or, or something else, in the overall scheme of life, you're pretty rich. You're pretty rich. If you've got some money in your pocket and a roof over your head and a car to drive and food to eat and clothes to wear and, you, and money for a little extra, you're rich. And Jesus says, woe to you who are rich. Woe to me. I have a roof over my head. I drove a car here. I put some food in my belly. And so when I, this makes me a little uncomfortable because Jesus says, for you have already received your comfort. I'm tempted, you know, as I, as I read through the commentaries, I, I, you know, people say, oh, well, Jesus isn't talking about the, the monetarily rich. He's talking about the spiritually rich and the spiritually poor, those who are humble and those who are spiritually rich. And, I, you know, I'm tempted to do that because that sort, of, that sort of relieves me from the responsibility here. But I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about. When you read through the stories of the gospel, Jesus, takes, Jesus talks more about money than he does about lots of other things. Woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. I'm tempted to try to explain that away, and I'm tempted to try to say, well, you know, this is what Jesus really meant, and it's okay, but I don't think that's what we're supposed to do with this text. I think we're supposed to let, let it sit and let it prick our hearts just a little bit. Let it make us a little bit uncomfortable. I think Jesus, I, you know, if we fit into the category here, we, we don't fit into the happy, blessed category that Jesus is talking about for the most part. We fit into this category. And that ought to make us a little uncomfortable. This is what happens when I get to sit on a text for a couple extra weeks. I've, I've, I've been wrestling with this for the past couple of weeks, and I tell you what, I mean, it's, it's really, it's eating me up inside the, the implications of some of this. Jesus doesn't stop there. He goes on. He says, Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. How many of us are well fed? It makes me uncomfortable. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. Just, just let that sink in a little bit. Jesus' recipe for happiness is basically the complete opposite for, from how most of us live on a day-by-day on a -day basis. If we were sitting in Jesus' original audience right now, we would probably be pretty uncomfortable in our skin. So as I was thinking about this, I was thinking, so what, what do I do with this? What do I do with this knowing that me and most everybody who's going to hear me in this sermon fits into the latter half of Jesus' words here? We're, we're the woes and not the happies. Got me think. So if, if Jesus is saying that in the fullness of the kingdom, it's the poor and the hungry and the weeping and the hated. If that's what the kingdom eventually is going to look like, that those people are going to be restored and satisfied. What does that mean for those of us who are Jesus followers here and now in the 21st century? 
And as I thought about it, I thought about the, the Lord's Prayer that Jesus teaches his followers to pray. Part of that Lord's Prayer is, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I thought about the fact that as Jesus followers, we've been invited to help bring about the kingdom on earth now until the fullness of it comes in the future. So, you know, th- this, is, this is sort of a strong indictment against most of us who are fairly rich in comparison, for those of us who are well-fed, for those of us who are laughing, and the, for those of us who are well-spoken of. So the question is, what do we do with this? And I came up with this question. What can we do now to reflect the reality of the future kingdom? What can we do now to reflect the reality of the future kingdom? For those of us who are Jesus followers, for those of us, especially Jesus followers, who fall into this category of the woes, what can we do now if, if the future kingdom is going to bring uh, satisfaction and laughter and comfort to those who are poor and hungry and weeping, what can we do to make that a reality for those people now? For those of us who are fairly wealthy followers of Jesus, how do we live our lives so as to bring about the kingdom here and now until it comes in its fullness when Jesus returns? Scripture tells us, Paul tells us in one place, that though Jesus was rich, for us he made himself poor. And there's, there's multiple layers to that. I think it's talking primarily spiritually. Though he was rich spiritually, though he had equality with God and all of that, he made himself poor for us. He died on the cross so that we could have a relationship with God. Although I was reading one person, uh, one scholar recently, who suggested that this was actually literally true. He suggested that Jesus may have actually come from a fairly wealthy family. The fact that his family was able to go to Jerusalem every year for the festival and the fact that Jesus knew so much about banking practices and financial practices in his time period that maybe he had actually come from wealth and that maybe Jesus took this seriously and actually became poor for the sake of those, you know, that he just gave everything away. Uh, Scripture doesn't tell us one way or the other, but that's a possibility. Uh, but if we follow his example, how, how do those of us who are rich become poor for the sake of others? How do those of us who are rich become poor for the sake of others? I think Paul wrestled with this question as well. And in his letter to Timothy, this is what he told him. 1 Timothy chapter 6. He's writing to his protege, telling his protege how to instruct the people around him. He says, command those who are rich in this present world, and that's most of us, if you have any excess if you have a roof over your head and you can spend a little bit more on groceries and buy some clothes, command those who are rich in this present world, that's us, not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. He goes on to say, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds and generous and willing to share. In this way, Paul says, in this way, by doing good, by being rich in good deeds and generous and willing to share, in this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. So Jesus isn't saying that just because we're rich, we have no shots. But throughout the New Testament, there is a clear relationship between riches and spirituality. And despite what the prosperity teachers want you to believe, it's not that spirituality leads to financial riches. That's not how Jesus works. 
over and over again, the relationship between riches and spirituality is that riches often keep us away from God. So what do those of us who have excess, what do those of us who are rich do in this present age to bring about the kingdom? We do good. We're rich in good deeds. We're generous and willing to share. We work now for those who will be fully restored in the kingdom. For those who are poor and hungry and in need of comfort, we provide resources and food and comfort. We dedicate our lives, those of us who have the means to do so, we dedicate our lives and our means to bringing about the kingdom now for those for whom Jesus said that he came. We do good. We're rich in good deeds. We're generous and willing to share. Like Jesus, we who are rich make ourselves poor for the sake of others. We live our lives, as Paul says in Romans chapter 2, as a living sacrifice. So here's my challenge for you as we move into 2017. Set a generosity goal. And if you've had a generosity goal in the past, increase it. Increase your generosity goal. What can you do? What can you do as an individual to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share? What can you do to bring about satisfaction and comfort for those who need it? What can we as a church do? How, what goal can we set for ourselves? Can we increase our goal so that uh, you know, over the next few years we dedicate more and more and more of our resources to, to tangibly helping those who don't have the resources that we enjoy? Can we, can we so cut back, can we, can we live in such a sacrificial manner that maybe we, we give up some of our own comfort, we give up some of our own riches in order to benefit and help other people? Isn't that what our Savior did for us? For though he was rich, he became poor for our sake. So set a generosity goal. Ask yourself, what, how can I go above and beyond this year? How can I sacrificially give of myself? How can I follow my Savior's example who paid the ultimate price, right? There's no amount that we could pay that would ever repay what Jesus has done for us. By giving his own life for us on the cross, he paid it all. There's no, there's no amount that we could give that would ever outmatch what Jesus has done for us. So what can we do this year? What can you as a follower of Jesus do this year to do good? to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. Let me pray. God, this text is challenging for me. As I read through Jesus' recipe for happiness, I realize that I don't really fit into those categories. I fit into the categories of the woe. So Father, as somebody who is rich and as somebody who leads this group of people who for most of us fit into the category of the rich. Let this text prick us in the heart just a little bit. Don't let us walk out of this church today without feeling a little uncomfortable. Prick us, challenge us, convict us, God. And then help us. Empower us. Give us the the courage to give more sacrificially than we've ever given. Give us the vision, God, to see the world the way that you do. To see the people that you've created the way that you do. Break our hearts for the things that break yours. Let us be known even more than we already are. God, we, 
even more than we already are as a people of generosity. Let people look at us and say, you know, I don't know if I believe what they believe, but gosh, they're a generous group of people. Gosh, they really seem to be trying to, to follow Jesus in everything that he did. Father, as we move into this new year, just transform our hearts and transform our visions and, and capture our hearts with your vision for our lives and your vision for this church and your vision for this community. Really help us, give us the courage to be a people who will just lay everything on the line in service to you, knowing that you will never, ever let us down. Father, I'm thankful again for this opportunity to be here. I'm thankful for these people. I just pray that you would continue to lead us and guide us according to your truth. Continue to transform us into the image of your Son. Help us to become more and more like Jesus every day. As difficult and as painful as it may be, at some times remind us that in the end, there's nothing more worth it than following him. Pray for these things in Jesus' strong name. Amen. All right. You're dismissed. Thank you.